we continue in our Advent series in Matthew 1, 1 through 17. This is Matthew's genealogy of Jesus. We introduced um, Jesus as the son of Abraham last week and introduced the, the um, genealogy here last week. Uh, and we're continuing in this genealogy and will for uh, two more Sundays after today uh, as we look at at who this genealogy is declaring and, and revealing Jesus to be. Um, but we're going to read Matthew 1, 1 through 17. If you want to stand with me, we're going to read God's holy and precious word. Matthew 1, 1 through 17. Wherein we see that Jesus this morning is a son of David, the son of David. Let's listen to God's word with reverence and joy. As Matthew wrote, inspired by the Holy Spirit, these words are the very words of God to us. Let's listen with such reverence, such joy as these words deserve. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers. And Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez, the father of Hezron, and Hezron, the father of Ram, and Ram, the father of Amminadab, and Amminadab, the father of Nashon, Nashon, and Nashon, the father of Salmon, and Salmon, the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz, the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of David, the king. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. And Solomon, the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam, the father of Abijah, and Abijah, the father of Asaph, and Asaph, the father of Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat, the father of Joram, and Joram, the father of Uzziah, and Uzziah, the father of Jotham, and Jotham, the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah, and Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh, and Manasseh, the father of Amos, and Amos, the father of Josiah, and Josiah, the father of Jeconiah, and his brothers, at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel was the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel the father of Abiud, and Abiud the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim the father of Azor, and Azor the father of Zadok, and Zadok the father of Achim, and Achim the father of Eliud, and Eliud the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar the father of Matin, and Matin the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born who is called Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, <clears throat> and from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Oh, Father, our Lord, our Savior, our our master, our friend. We pray that this word would pass from our ears to our hearts, and from our hearts to our lips and conversations, so that as rain returns not empty, but produces precisely what you send it forth to do in the earth, so your word would return not to you empty, but produce the very fruit that you intend in your people to the glory and exaltation of your Son. In his name we pray. Amen. You can be seated. 
Well, in, in our time and in our place, a, a person's resume is obviously very important. It's a, a standard requirement in order to assess a person's qualifications and suitability, uh, particularly as it relates to employment and vocation. And uh, not long ago, a, a, a person in my family felt led to, uh, by the Lord to seek a, a new vocation. And so, you know, first things first, they did exactly what many of us would do when such uh, an occasion arises. He updated his resume. He updated his educational experience, his vocational experience. He put together a list of references and skills and duties from past positions. And when he found positions and, and potential employers that he desired, he would send them his resume and, and would meet with them and they would ask him questions about his resume, his skills, his qualifications, his experience, and so on. Well, in the Jewish world, in the first century, if someone were to go through a process like that, it would probably have looked a little bit different in some ways. If someone were searching for work at that time, their resume wouldn't likely be merely a testimony to their experience, their skills, their education. It would, it would include their family. Say someone in the first century Jewish world were looking for work and they were speaking with a potential employer, the, the questions the potential employer would ask would not likely be as much focused on the person's abilities and experience. I'm sure that wouldn't have been irrelevant. But just as important, perhaps more important, would be, who is this person's family? Who does he descend from? Who are his people? What is his tribe? And that would have told them much of what they needed to know. Well, this morning, we're, we're continuing our time in Matthew's genealogy of Jesus Christ, and Matthew is showing us the family tree of Jesus. He's showing us who Jesus comes from, who his people are, what his tribe is. And part of the purpose of this is to show us who Jesus is and what he came to do by showing us who he came from. He's showing us Jesus's messianic identity and something of his qualifications for being considered this promised Messiah. He's showing all this by showing us Jesus's family tree. Last week, we began our, our time together by seeing that Jesus is, is Abraham's promised offspring. And we saw that God, so long ago, had, had promised, had made a promise in, in his covenant with Abraham that he was going to bless all the peoples of the earth through this son that would come from his line. And we saw that Matthew is showing us here when he calls Jesus the son of Abraham that Jesus is that promised offspring. But then there's another name. That serves as a kind of focal point here, perhaps even more than Abraham's name. And that's the name of David, the king. And this is significant because as we said last week, if you were going to ask your average Jewish person in Israel in the first century what it is they were hoping for, what it is they were longing for in the arrival of the promised Messiah, they would likely tell you about God's promises in his covenant with Abraham concerning his offspring and also of God's promises in his covenant with David concerning his these were a Jewish person's left and right hands, right? Out of all of the, the mountain range of God's promises in the Old Testament, these would be high peaks, perhaps the highest of peaks. Because just as God had promised to bless all nations through Abraham's offspring, he had also made a matchless promise to David that one of David's sons would rule and reign over all the earth for all eternity, bringing shalom and peace and wholeness to the earth forevermore. 
He would rescue God's people and rule over them with justice and peace and integrity, and this is what God's people longed for. In fact, this is really what we all long for. We all long for for a righteous ruler coming to heal this world of all of its brokenness. And Matthew is showing us here that Jesus is that ruler. He's showing us that Jesus is the son of David, come to bring his eternal reign of wholeness. And we're going to see this as we look first at the promise of the Davidic king, the problems with this family tree, and the pertinence of the king's coming. First, though, we see the promise of the Davidic king. If if you hadn't noticed here, Matthew seeks to make it abundantly clear that Jesus is a descendant of King David, right? So he begins his genealogy with saying in verse 1, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And then, like Abraham, David's name serves as one of the headings, one of the organizing principles of this entire genealogy. Matthew ends our passage in verse 17 saying, so all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. And then we we read the genealogy as we read it. We see the name at the head of the middle paragraph, the center of Matthew's genealogy of Jesus, is the name of David the king. There in verse 6, the 14th and 15th name given is David's. As Matthew writes, that Jesse was the father of David the king, and David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. And in doing all this, and in calling Jesus the son of David, Matthew is undoubtedly trying to bring to the reader's attention God's promises to David concerning one of his sons. And we find this promise made initially to David back in 2 Samuel 7. And you can turn there if you want. I'm not going to read the whole thing, but But uh, just to kind of introduce you to it and and give a bit of context, in 2 Samuel 7, David is king in Israel, and he's he's at something at the peak of his reign, right? God has given Israel rest from all their surrounding enemies. David has just built himself a palace, a house of cedar, 2 Samuel 7, 2 says. And while David is dwelling in this, this beautiful house of cedar, it says, this luxurious, beautiful palace... He looks across the way in the city and he notices that the Ark of the Covenant, the sign of God's presence in Israel, didn't dwell in a house or a palace, it dwelled in a tent. The the place in which God dwelled among his people was still the tabernacle, which was a great tent. It was a, a magnificent tent. Better than, you know, any tent you've set up when camping before. It's a marvelous, magnificent, large, beautiful tent, but still, it's a tent. And so David was hanging out with the prophet Nathan one night, and David says to Nathan, brother, you know, I can't help but notice that I'm dwelling in this incredible house of cedar while the Lord is dwelling in a tent, and so here's what I want to do. I want to build a house for God. I want to build a temple. And initially, Nathan goes, Sounds like a good idea. Build God a house. You have a house. You know, I have a house. We all have houses. Let's build God a house. It's a good idea. Do it. However, Nathan went home that night, and the word of the Lord came to him and and, and said to go tell David that the Lord said this. Do I need a house? Did I ask you to build me a house? The implication being, no, God didn't ask for it. He doesn't need it, and so he tells David to chill on that. But then Nathan goes, he, he, Nathan goes on to say something 
just amazing. It's beginning at, at 2 Samuel 7:11. if you're turned there. Nathan says, moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. He's kind of making a play on words here. He doesn't mean like a literal physical house. David already had one of those, obviously. What he means is, I, I'm going to build you a dynasty, David. I'm going to give you a household of rulers that comes from your body, that descend from you and your household. And he goes on to describe what he means. He says, starting there in verse 12, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, after you die, David, he says, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him, at, depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. And so see what he's saying. He's saying your son and even your son's son, and your son's son's son, and so on, they're going to rule and reign on the throne of this kingdom that I'm establishing forever, and ever, and ever, and ever. He's saying it's not going to be like Saul's kingship, right? Wherein I remove him and his own from the throne. Your household, David, your descendants, will reign on the throne forever and ever, even when they fail, even when they sin and fall short of my glory, God says, I'll discipline them. But I promise that those who come from your body will reign on the throne forever and ever. And we see this very thing happen as you read on. In the Old Testament after 2 Samuel 7, Solomon, the, the kind of initial fulfillment of that promise, he sits on the throne after David. And Solomon, well, he, he does well at first, and he actually builds a temple, but then he falls and fails, and God disciplines him. And eventually he dies. And the same is true of, of many more of David's descendants who came to sit on the throne after him. Some of them are, are good kings. Undoubtedly, you see names like Hezekiah and Uzziah on, on this list, of this genealogy here. Not perfect, but, but good kings. But eventually they die. And often those who come after them are wicked kings that, that God disciplines. And, and, and shortly after Solomon, God's discipline even leads to the kingdom that God promised to give David splitting in two with Israel in the north and Judah in the south, just the singular tribe of Judah in the south, over which David's sons rule. And later, God's discipline of David's sons and, and the nation of Israel actually gets worse. And the kings and the people go on to sin so grievously, so horribly, so rebelliously, so, so, so much idolatry and wickedness just filled the people of God that God sends them into exile. So we see in Matthew's genealogy when it speaks of the deportation to Babylon. And this is really one of the great crises of the Old Testament. Because God promised to seat David's sons on the throne forever and ever and to give them an everlasting kingdom. And while David and his sons did reign on the throne for 400 years, eventually the deportation to Babylon came, the exile came and the question left raging in the hearts of God's people at the end of the Old Testament is this, have God's promises failed? Has God 
Has he promised something and not kept his promise? Has he failed to keep his promises? And this is where the prophets come in and speak a word of hope. And we don't have time to to explore all the places in which they speak this word of hope, but Isaiah 9, 1 through 7 is an important text for us to consider, especially in this season. As Isaiah was there preaching about the nation's humiliation and exile and deportation to Babylon, as he's preaching about this, he speaks a word of hope to God's people to declare to them that God's promises have not failed. And he does this by prophesying about a coming birth. He says, for to us a child is born. To us a son is given. And he says this about this child. He says, the government shall be upon his shoulder and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And listen, of the increase of his government and of his peace, there will be no end on the throne of David. And over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. You see what he's saying? He's saying, there's a birth coming. I know things look dark now. I know the exile's coming. There's a birth coming though. There's a son that's going to be born among our people and he's going to come in the line of David. And he's going to sit on the throne of David. And he's going to sit on that throne forever and ever and ever. And he's going to reign in such a way that his government will always increase. So that he's not just the ruler of our nation and our people. But he's going to be the ruler of the ends of the earth. Of all nations. Of all Gentiles. And what he's going to give to to our people and to the ends of the earth is peace, Isaiah says. Peace. And, and, And understand that this biblical conception of peace is not just the absence of conflict like we you know americans often think of when we hear that word peace we think of just the absence of conflict just kind of like things aren't too bad it's kind of peaceful it's kind of chill the biblical conception here is is shalom shalom is not just an absence of conflict it's not just things not being the way they should be but it's things being completely whole. It's, it, it's the fullness of flourishing and life and blessing like we saw last week in God's promise to Abraham. He's saying the son of David is going to ascend to the throne. He's going to bring everlasting fullness of flourishing and wholeness to the ends of the earth. He's going to rule with justice and righteousness, making all things right and all things new, just as they ought to be. This is what God's people longed for. This is what the prophets foretold. It's kind of like those Narnians who would often repeat that rhyming phrase to each other, saying, wrong will be made right when Aslan comes in sight. At the sound of his roar, sorrows will be no more. When he bears his teeth, winter meets its death. And when he shakes his mane, we shall have spring again. The, the Narnians longed for Aslan's arrival because it meant the beginning of things being made new and right and whole. And so it was with the promise of the Davidic king, not just for Israel, but for all of us. You want to live in a world with no more sickness, no more sorrow, no more death? You want to live in a world with no more conflict or quarreling? No more divided families, no more divided peoples, no more divided nations. You want to live in a world with, with, with no more depression or anxiety or fear? 
You want to live in a world with no more racism or prejudice? You want to live in a world where there's no more scarcity, no more not yet or not enough? Of course, you you want to live in a world wherein there's abundance and happiness, where, where you know and are known by others deeply and lovingly. You want to live in a world where there's enough for everybody, wherein there's nothing to be afraid of and nothing to be anxious over, wherein there's harmony and love and justice and peace and wholeness forever and ever and ever. That's the kind of world that God promised to bring through King David's promised royal son. Isaiah is telling God's people here, God's not forgot his promises. He's not forgot his promises to Abraham and to David. He's going to accomplish them. He's going to bring them to completion. He's going to fulfill them. And he's going to do this through this son, this child who will be born to us. Who coincidentally is not just a human king. God will send a son of David to sit on his throne forever. And unlike those other sons of David, he won't be removed. He won't be a bad king who needs to be disciplined. He won't be a good but temporary king whose rule ends. Matthew wants us to see here that Jesus is this promised child born to us. Jesus is the son who is given. He is the son of David. And he doesn't, unlike those other sons, he's not going to need to be disciplined. He doesn't need to be disciplined with the rod of iron, with the stripes of the sons of men. Because he's perfect and spotless and sinless. If you read on in Matthew's gospel, you'll see that he did take on the rod of iron. He did take on the stripes of the sons of men. He did take on the punishment of God, but he didn't do it because he deserved it. He did it because we do. He took it for us in our place, but what's more is that he rose again. Three days later, he rose up defeating death. He rose up immortal, incorruptible, so that he will never die again because death no longer has dominion over him, Romans 6, 9 says. So unlike even those good kings in David's line, his reign won't end because his life won't ever end. He's ascended and seated in heaven at God's right hand, seated on David's throne, having inaugurated his reign of peace. And one day, he will return to bring it in fullness and completion. This is good news, friends. This is good news. God has made a binding promise to King David. And he has made good and is making good on these promises. Have have God's promises failed? That's the question. That's the burning question of God's people in the Old Testament. Matthew 1 says to Israel and to us, no, God has pledged himself to his people and nothing could keep him from making good on his promises. Not the failures and sins of Israel and Israel's kings, None of them could constrain the grace and the faithfulness of God, just as our failures can't constrain the grace and faithfulness of God. We can't outfail God's faithfulness, just as Israel couldn't. We can't outsend His grace, no matter how deeply, how terribly, how horribly we fail as fallen humanity. God's promises will always hold true. This is what the promise of the Davidic king shows us Jesus is the son of David. I'm to bring his reign of wholeness and peace and shalom forever. Now that's the promise, but, but, but we read in this genealogy here, it's, it, people as, as they read it, they have often noticed that there's some, there's some potential problems in this family tree. And some of us 
I mean, even this last week as we've been reading this because of the series that we're in, some of us have some questions about this, gene- this genealogy, this family tree. And so we've, we've got to discuss some of these problems at some point throughout the series. And, and so let's just do this this morning. Now, there are two main problems that people can sometimes have with Matthew's genealogy. The first problem that people often have is, is why are there differences between Matthew's and Luke's genealogies? Why are there differences between Matthew's genealogy here in, in Matthew 1 and in Luke's genealogy of Jesus there in chapter 3 of Luke? So Mark's and John's Gospels don't have genealogies, but, but Matthew's and Luke's do, and there are some differences between the two genealogies, and, and some of those differences are not issues at all. Like, you know, Luke's genealogy goes all the way back to Adam at the beginning. Matthew's only goes back to Abraham, and there are theological reasons for that, as we saw last week. They also both work in different directions, right? Matthew starts with Abraham and moves uh, and works his way forward to Jesus, while Luke starts with Jesus and works his way back to Adam. But then here are some, some big issues that, that people can sometimes have. Is once you get to David in both genealogies, they seem to diverge. They seem to take different routes. So Matthew's genealogy, after David, goes to Solomon, and then it goes to Jacob as the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born. And yet Luke's genealogy, after David, says that, mentions David's son as Nathan instead of Solomon. And then it says that Joseph, Jesus' legal father, is the son of Heli. And so they seem to diverge after David and then both merge back together with Joseph, Jesus' legal father. Now, now what, what gives here, right? This seems strange. Why do they diverge? Why do they differ? Is this an error? Now, the, 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 the genealogies do diverge, and one of the really common answers people give to this question, this problem, is that uh, one genealogy is for Joseph, and one genealogy is for Mary, right? So people often note how Matthew's genealogy seems, a, 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 or Matthew's gospel in Matthew 1 seems a bit more focused on Joseph after the genealogy, while Luke's in the birth narrative focuses a lot on Mary. And even in Luke's genealogy, if you look at Luke 3.23, Luke gives Joseph's, Joseph's name in the genealogy, which is normal, since genealogies in those days would have traced the line of the fathers. It would have been patrilineal in that sense. But he says something interesting. He says that Jesus was the son as was supposed of Joseph. And so some people look at Luke's focus on Mary in the birth narrative and how Luke calls Jesus, or, uh, Jesus the supposed son of Joseph. And they say, see here, he, he's doing Mary's line, not Joseph's. And, and that's possible. I think another explanation is more plausible though, which is that one genealogy offers the biological lineage of Jesus and one offers the legal lineage of Jesus. So we've talked about in sermons here on Sunday mornings before about this practice of leveret marriage. Leveret marriage was this practice prescribed in, in Leviticus wherein a married man, if a married man died without having produced an offspring and an heir, his brother was required to marry his widow and raise up offspring to carry on his brother's name and lineage and give his brother's uh, lineage an heir. And that offspring wouldn't be the biological offspring of the deceased brother, but he would be the legal offspring of the deceased brother. You can see this in Ruth 
in, in the book of Ruth, uh, very clearly, this practice of leveret marriage. Um, so there, there's, there, there's a sense in which he, he would not be the biological offspring of the deceased brother, but the legal offspring and the heir of the deceased brother. And so some explain that probably one of the genealogies speaks to the biological lineage of Jesus, and one speaks to the legal lineage due to Joseph, Jesus' father, being the offspring of a leveret marriage. In this sense, Joseph would be both the son of Heli, according to Luke, and of Jacob, according to Matthew, being the son of one biologically and the other legally due to adoption and leveret marriage. And some have even pointed out that this seems to be confirmed because Luke chapter 3 seems to make reference to adoption and leveret marriage in a few places. Like Luke 3, 1, with Herod unlawfully marrying his brother's wife. Or in Luke 3.23, when Luke calls Jesus the supposed son of Joseph, some say this is Luke giving a subtle nod to us, so that we see that Luke is speaking of leveret marriage or legal adoption here. Some will even go as far to say that 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 leveret marriage was being referred to when John the Baptist in Luke 3.16 described himself as being unworthy to even untie the straps of Jesus' sandals. So one scholar notes of, of that reference that Untying a sandal strap was the, a key moment in the Haliza, this process that released a man from leveret marriage. You can see that in Deuteronomy 25.9, Ruth 4.7. And so he says, perhaps then, John was declaring himself not just beneath Christ, but also as unworthy to displace him as Israel's true husband, John being the best man, not the bridegroom. So he's saying this is a, a reference to the, lever, the practice of leveret marriage. And so People look at these references, these subtle nods from Luke, and they say Luke is talking in this genealogy about uh, Jesus's, uh, perhaps Jesus's uh, biological and, uh, and, and uh, genealogy due to this practice of leveret marriage and legal adoption here. It seems that leveret marriage and legal adoption is mentioned in three places in Luke chapter 3, where we also find Luke's genealogy. And so it seems entirely plausible That Luke's genealogy speaks to this reality that Joseph was the offspring produced in leveret marriage, which would explain why there are differences in Matthew's and Luke's genealogies. But then that's not the only difference. That's not the only problem some folks might have with Matthew's genealogy. One of the items is just so obvious here, you probably thought it the first time we read it, is that there's no way that Matthew records every name in the complete genealogy of Jesus from Abraham to Jesus. There are names, lots of names missing from this list. Why are their names omitted from Matthew's genealogy, right? So there were 18 centuries between Abraham and Jesus, and only 42 generations mentioned here. It doesn't take a genius to realize things don't really add up there. And, and, and moreover, if you go look at more genealogies throughout the Old Testament, you will inevitably find that there were certain names omitted from this list. Why is that? What gives? Well, this seems to be intentional on Matthew's part, not that Matthew is seeking to present inaccurate history here. He's trying to show something of the, of the historicity of Jesus' coming and his family lineage, of course, but he's also got another goal in mind as well, and one that's just as important. He's got a theological goal in mind with this genealogy. And so he intentionally leaves off some names in this list in order to maintain this number of 14 between the three headings of his genealogy. So that number 14, it's obviously a very important number in Matthew's genealogy. And that's because the number 14 
was representative of the name of David. Now, I often discourage people from playing kind of weird numbers games with the Bible. You can head into some weird, weird places if you start playing numbers games with the Bible. But sometimes the authors of Scripture themselves treat certain numbers as being significant. And if we're going to honor the authorial intent of biblical texts, uh, then whenever biblical authors seem to highlight and use certain numbers to communicate certain truths, then we need to pay attention to that. And that seems to be what Matthew's doing here because in the Hebrew alphabet, Hebrew letters have numeric significance. And it's well known that if you add the numbers together from the three letters in David's name in Hebrew, you get the number 14. Dalet 4, Vav 6, Dalet 4 equals 14. And not only that, but David's name is placed at the 14th and 15th places in the genealogy. And this seems very important, very intentional. And then, moreover, he's giving a triad of four teams, three being this number of completion of the Bible. It, it seems like Matthew is trying to say that Jesus is the promised Davidic king. Not just in the words that he uses, which he is, but also just in the very shape and structure of this passage as a whole. He's trying to show us, even by the shape of this passage, that Jesus has come to bring to completion and fulfillment the promises that God made in the Davidic covenant. Matthew's willing to omit in certain names in this genealogy, not because he's indifferent to the historical accuracy of his genealogy, but because he has a theological point he's trying to make about the identity of Jesus as the promised son of David. There were other sons of David alive in Jesus' day, Joseph being one of them. Matthew's trying to communicate in the way he sets up this genealogy that Jesus is not just another son of David. He's not just related to David. Jesus is the one promise in David's line. He is the one son of David who's come to complete and fulfill God's promises to David to reign on the throne of God's kingdom forever and ever to bring his everlasting rule of peace and shalom and wholeness and righteousness forevermore. He's trying to show us that Jesus has come to fulfill God's promises to David and to his people from so long ago. Now, all of this seems very Hebrew, very Jewish, and, and it is, and it all seems very old and ancient, and it is. So what does this have to do with us? What does this have to do with people living thousands of miles away and thousands of years later? What does this have to do with, with people living in 2022, in this climate, in this culture like we have today? Why is this relevant? Look at me lastly at the pertinence of the king's coming. And there are many ways in which this is relevant to us today. In so many ways, we don't even have time to consider them all. I need to cut this short. But, but let's consider this reality, that, that Jesus is the ruler we've always ached for. Jesus is the ruler we've always ached for. We, we've already discussed how the people of Israel were longing for the arrival of the Davidic king. They looked forward to and longed for this day with utter hope and anticipation because they longed for the day in which God's peace and justice and wholeness would fill the earth. This is not just a longing located in the heart of the people of Israel in the first century. This is a longing located within each and every single human heart. We, we all long for a righteous government to rule over and invade this earth to bring peace 
and wholeness, to bring justice and righteousness, to beat our swords into plows and our spears into pruning hooks, to bring death and evil and suffering to their complete and total end, to pull up evil and sin and sadness from the roots and replace it all with happiness and wholeness, with flourishing and shalom. The, 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 the great scholar, theologian Richard Lovelace really got to the heart of this human longing when he wrote this. He said, one of the ruling passions of humanity is the search for a righteous government. The poor and the disadvantaged contend against the system with the conviction that another economic order will finally make the world livable. Every four years, the American people elect a new president with the hope that somehow this will make things better. Economic downturns, crop failures, moral declines, worsening international conditions are all blamed on presidents who in most cases have little control over events. In the hearts of the people is a groping, inarticulate conviction that if the right ruler would only come along, the world would be healed of all its wounds. Creation is headless and desperately searching for its head. In the hearts of the people is a groping, inarticulate conviction that if only the right ruler would come along, this world would be healed of all its wounds. We are headless and desperately searching for our head. And I, I know you can see this in our cultural moment. You can see this right now. Elections come every couple of years. You can see the, the passion, the anger, the anxiety with which people fight and quarrel and bicker. You can see all of this, this groping, inarticulate longing within the human heart that people have for this righteous government, for this right ruler. For, it, it's, it's headless people. It's a headless creation searching for its head. People are hungry for justice and wholeness. People are perpetually unsatisfied with human government. People are searching and searching and searching. And Matthew is saying to us and to all peoples, here he is. Here's your head. Here's the one who will establish righteous government. Here's the righteous ruler who will bring shalom and wholeness forevermore, who will heal the world of all its wounds. Christian, we've found him. You might look around and go, who are you kidding? Are you kidding? This, this world is a mess. You're telling me Jesus is the king who's come to establish shalom and wholeness and justice and all this? Why are things not as they should be? He came 2,000 years ago. Well, friends, we live in what we call the, the already and the not yet of the kingdom of God. The reign of the Davidic king. It's already here. Jesus has already come. He's died a sinner's death. He's risen on the third day. And, and, and he's seated at the right hand of God. And because of his cross, he declares amnesty to all who would come and submit to his rule and reign and belong to his kingdom. He's already come. He's already inaugurated his kingdom and reign. But he has yet to bring his rule and reign to its fullness and completion. And this is what the season of Advent is all about. We're celebrating that Christ has come to establish his kingdom. But we're acknowledging in the season that we still await its full arrival. He will one day return to rid this earth of this curse, 
to rid it of all evil, to fully establish shalom and justice perfectly forevermore. But the time is not yet. I always use the illustration. It's similar to World War II. On D-Day, when the Allied forces stormed the beaches of Normandy, and they essentially achieved victory on that day, historians say that on that day, the war was as good as over. On that day. But it wasn't until V-Day, almost a year later, when Germany finally surrendered. And when the war was officially over, victory had been inaugurated. Peace had been inaugurated, but it hadn't yet seen its completion. And just so, we've seen the coming of the Davidic king, but not its consummation yet. But we, as those who belong to this kingdom, as citizens of the kingdom of God, we know that it's come in Christ, and we know that it will one day come in full. That's our hope. So let me ask you, does your life reflect this, Christian? Does your life reflect this? I I know so many of our non-believing neighbors get so anxious, so angry, so overly passionate about their politics. We just talked about, about their candidates, their parties, their issues. Don't hear me say that we should be indifferent. I'm not saying we should be indifferent about these things. We live in the tension of this already and not yet. And in this present time, God has ordained that earthly governments rule over us in our lands, and so we shouldn't be indifferent to, to how our earthly governments rule. We should be desiring of good governing authorities to lead with justice and for the common good, and, and we should be appropriately concerned with politics and government to that end, but we should also face the reality that often, this isn't Israel with David's sons prior to Christ. The oversight of good leaders will still be imperfect and will inevitably come to an end. Now, evil leaders will sometimes rule. And yet, because of that reality, because of, because of the reality of the kingdom of God and the coming of, of David's son and the promise of his one-day return, we can be a people of rest and joy, of peace and hope, no matter what comes. When good leaders rule, we can be glad but not overly invested because we know that they're still sinners themselves and eventually their time will come to an end. And when it does, and if evil leaders replace them, we can be grieved by it, but we don't despair. We don't get anxious. We don't get fearful. Because our hope is found not in earthly governments and rulers, but in the Davidic king whose rule knows no end, whose authority knows no bounds, and who was promised to one day make all things new. In other words, we can be a people of rest and peace and hope no matter what. Because our hope doesn't lie in the uncertainty of earthly rulers, but in the certainty of God's promises and kingdom. Our hope rests in the first and second advents of the Davidic King, our Savior, our Christ. Now, there were several other applications I want to kind of tease out here, but because of time, we we just need to stop. So maybe we could just end our time here this morning with this call. You know, if you read on past What we read earlier in 2 Samuel 7, you'll find David's response to God's amazing promises to him. And it's really amazing. David David came in with so much ambition about what he wanted to do for God. But at the end of the chapter, he simply stands amazed at what God promised to do for him. And so the chapter ends simply with David saying, thank you. With David just sitting, marveling, speechless at the matchless, marvelous, jaw-dropping grace of God. And scholar writes about David's response in 2 Samuel 7. He says this about it. He says, Stunned, 
David lays aside his own blueprint and simply sits in the presence of the Lord, marveling at the amazing plan the Lord had just unrolled before him. How easily our imaginations can be captured by and our energies exhausted by what we want to build for God. And what he really wants is for us to sit attentively, witnessing what he is building so that we may marvel and give him thanks. Friends, living on this side of Christ's first advent and now knowing what we know of his second, we have all the more reason to sit and marvel and give thanks to God for his stunning grace. So that's what I want us to do as we close our time together. We're just going to conclude our time in prayer, and as we transition to a time in wherein we partake of the Lord's Supper, let's give thanks together and marvel at what Christ has done for us, at how he's fulfilled God's promises. Let's increase in the hope and longing and anticipation of his return as we partake of this meal together. Let's pray. Father, we do give you thanks for what you have accomplished in the coming of your son and David's son. We thank you that you have inaugurated his rule, that you have accomplished our full amnesty and acquittal in his cross, that you have granted him the resurrection of the body and life eternal and seated him upon the throne of all heaven and earth so that he rules right now over all heaven and earth, having all authority everywhere. We pray that that we would live according to that reality, that we would marvel at that reality, that we would be filled with hearts full of gratitude and thankfulness because of that reality. And, and we pray that you would give us hearts of gratitude and thankfulness because of what you have promised to do in a second coming. As we await it, as we hope in it, as we anticipate it, increase in us hearts that marvel at what you are building, at what you are doing, so that we might live for your glory in this present evil age wherein you have placed us. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.